If you would like to earn CPE credit for listening to the show, visit earmarkcpe.com backslash FPA. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. If you would like to earn continuing education credit for your FP&A certification from the Association of Finance Professionals for listening to the show, go to the show notes for details on how to earn the credit. Finally, if you enjoy listening to FP&A today, please go to your podcast platform of choice, click the subscribe button, and leave a rating and review of the show. And now, on to the show. From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy, and you are listening to FPNA Today. FPNA Today is brought to you by Data Rails, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FP&A. We will provide you with actionable advice about financial planning and analysis. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FP&A. I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest on the show, Biarcha Bogdanis. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. Really excited to have you here with us. And just let me give a little bit of his background and then I'll give him an opportunity to introduce himself. So he comes to us from Norway. He is the author of the book, This is Beyond Budgeting, A Guide to More Adaptive and Human Organizations. Congratulations on that. He is uh, self-employed running his own advisory company. And he's also chairman of the Beyond Budgeting Roundtable. So if you could go ahead and maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, we'd appreciate that. Yes, I am a finance guy where I have my education, but uh, I'm actually one of the few in finance that also have been working in human resources, heading up an HR function for a number of years. But my finance career started in quite a traditional way. I was working for Scandinavia's largest company. It used to be called Statoil, now Equinor. And my first management job, by the way, in this company was head of the corporate budget department. So I've done quite a lot of stupid things in my life in that job and in many other finance manager jobs in different places in Europe. I worked a number of years abroad. But then in the mid-90s, through a coincidence, we got the chance to kick out the budget in a company that Equinor, owning 50%, is called Boyalis. And it was wonderful. This was actually before Beyond Budgeting was invented. So that's that's how it started. And I never looked back. Great. I'm you know excited to get into that a little bit more and you know talk a little bit more about that. But before I do that, you'd mentioned, you know, you'd worked in HR. I know you've done some project management, you know, classically trained in finance, but, you know, quite a diverse background for your typical finance professional that's writing books about, you know, beyond budgeting and things. So, you know, what interested you in kind of doing HR and trying these different, you know, different roles outside of finance? Well, my way into HR was that I had a lot of views on how HR should be run. (laughs) I was quite outspoken. And then I was offered a role. And I have to say it was a wake-up call for me when it comes to the people and leadership side of Beyond Budgeting, which I will come back to. And I think that the problem with, with finance and HR is that very often they are like cats and dogs in organizations. They talk 
not much with each other. They talk a lot about each other, and it's not very nice what is said on either side. And that's a problem because both of these functions work with performance, right? Mm -hmm. And if they are not aligned, if they don't talk together, that is a problem for the organization. If they do talk together, if they work together, the whole implementation of, for instance, beyond budgeting also becomes much more powerful. So one of my implementation advices to finance is actually team up with your human resources colleagues if, if there are good ones. And normally there are at least some. Sure. And I can definitely, I know I've been in companies where, like you mentioned, it was more kind of fighting and bad mouth and you didn't really work great together. And it caused a lot of problems. It put more strain on me as a finance professional, for sure, because there was things I was doing that really should have been a partnership or more done by HR. And so I can relate to what you're talking about of the importance of having a good relationship there. And then I've been in situations where I've had great relationships with some of the HR people and it makes a big difference. And I imagine even more so when you get into Beyond Budgeting. So speaking about that, I know you recently wrote your book, This is Beyond Budgeting, A Guide to More Adaptive and Human Organizations. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that experience and why you wrote the book? I wrote this book because I've actually written two other books also about Beyond Budgeting, but those were thicker books than this one. And I mentioned this because the ones we need to reach with Beyond Budgeting are busy people, namely, namely executives, uh, who very often don't have time to read those thicker books. So this book is uh, kind of condensing the messages. It is shorter. It is uh, possible to read it on a longer flight. And it also got a lot of new stuff, a lot of learnings and insights from working with a lot of great companies uh, in the years since the previous books uh, came out. And I'm also extremely proud that uh, Gary Hamill wrote the foreword of the book. Uh, Gary Hamill, when we talk about management innovation, I mean, he is number one in the world and he's written a, a beautiful foreword. That's always great when you can get, you know, one of the experts to write a foreword. I'm sure that was a nice, nice thing there. Can you, So you wrote two books previously and it sounds like those were both beyond budgeting. So were those more, you said they were a lot thicker books. So was it more technical, more getting into the details to how to implement it versus this book? or Not more technical, but I went deeper into uh, uh, cases, uh, what we did in Borealis in the mid-90s, what we did in uh, Equinor 10 years later in 2005 when we kicked out the budgets and, uh, and, and a lot more. And I was uh, heading up that activity as, uh, as well. So it's basically a book with more of everything. And uh, so that's why this new one is... Uh, somewhat different. And the feedback so far has been very good. Good. No, it's definitely when I uh, was brought up to me to have you on the show and I looked up the book and I'm like, I'm going to have to order that. You know, it's on my list. I have a number of books I'm trying to get through right now. And I was like, this will be really interesting because I've always thought it'd be interesting to learn a little bit more on Beyond Budgeting. I mean, I've read the basics and I know the general idea, but I've never implemented it at a company, never been involved in it at any detailed level. So I'm excited to kind of dig into the book a little bit and see how it's benefited the organizations you've, you know, you've talked about. So when it comes to the book, 
what would you say you hope people get out of the book? For those who read it, what, what, what's kind of the takeaway you hope they have? Well, first of all, I hope they understand and appreciate the serious problems with traditional management, including but not limited to budgeting, right? Because beyond budgeting, it's about much more than budgets that we will come back to. So, so that's why I spend actually quite some time talking about that case for change, uh, these serious problems, because without that understanding, the appetite for doing something will not necessarily be what, what it has to be. So uh, then I talk about uh, what Beyond Budgeting is, great cases from around the world and some very practical tips coming from uh, my own experience, uh, helping close to 50 companies over the years getting started. So it is both theoretical and a practical book. And I hear you have a long list, but I mean, you won't, this one won't take you that long to read. Again, it's, it's not a brick. Yeah, no, I, you know, like I said, added to my list, I was like, I need to go out to Amazon and throw that in the, uh, in the cart today. So I'm, I'm excited to, to read through it because like I said, I think there's definitely some problems with the budget and it sounds like this is one approach to try to solve a lot of those. But before we jump into that, you know, in particular, can you maybe talk to our audience a little bit and explain what is beyond budgeting? Just kind of give us the idea of, you know, what it is, generally how it works, a little bit of that. Well, first of all, it is a somewhat misleading name because it is about much more than budgets. It is about changing traditional management. It is about business agility. And but no company can be truly become truly agile unless you also address the budgeting process and the budgeting mindset built on the two assumptions that you can't trust people and that the future is predictable and planable. And uh, none of those are true. And those are assumptions we challenge in Beyond Budgeting. So the model itself, it has 12 principles. There are six on leadership, talking about autonomy, purpose, empowerment and transparency and, and, and so on. Not necessarily that unique in its messages around leadership, because many other leadership communities and models have similar good messages. But very few of these have reflected much on what kind of management process are needed to activate these good leadership intentions. And I think that is what makes Beyond Budgeting kind of stand out a bit compared to a lot of other stuff out there, because we have these six principles on management processes that can create this coherence between what is said and what is done, what is preached and what's practiced, which is extremely important. So coherence here between the two is key in Beyond Budgeting. So leadership and management processes in a coherent, consistent way. Yeah. So, I mean, if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like, right, obviously you got the leadership component, you got the management and those six things you mentioned, but it's really about bringing them together and making sure and it's it's in a coherent manner and that everybody's on the same page, that what you're preaching is also what you're practicing. It's not just, yeah, here's here's what we should be doing. Here's what our values and our vision and our principles are. And then you go into the work on the first day and you're like, okay, nobody follows any of these, right? We've all been in those type of situations. This is why if you want management processes that reflect those hopefully good leadership intentions, you have to also do something with the traditional detailed budget, which is about uh, centralized command and control and cascading and micromanagement and distrust and uh, no transparency and so on. I mean, a classical example, it doesn't help that executives talk loud and warm about how fantastic employees we have. And we would be nothing without you. And we trust you so much, but not that much. Of course, we need detailed travel budgets. Are you crazy? I mean, this is hypocrisy and people notice, right? 
And they notice the gaps, the poisonous gaps between what is said and what is done. So that is one reason why we need something to do, do with do something with budgets. Another reason is all the volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity out there. It's too slow. It's too rigid. It's, uh, yeah. No, that, that's helpful. So, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times, we've talked a little bit about, one, the future is predictable, is that first notion that you say, hey, we should all be challenging, that, you know, it's really not predictable, right? Which is one of the two, one of the main assumptions of budgeting. So first, could you talk a little bit about that idea, the future is predictable, and why you think, you know, that's a that's a false notion to kind of have and how you should think about it. Well, I think that one is so, so almost so obvious that the, yeah. After the last few years, anyone who hasn't COVID and everything else, yeah. I mean, we've seen um, so many. I mean, year after year. I mean, there's been so much stuff happening, and and but you know, we've had crises before, like the finance crisis. But that one, for in, uh, for instance, only challenged this uh, one assumption uh, about the future being uh, predictable and planable. But COVID was in a way different. Because through all the home office work, COVID also challenged the second assumption that you can't trust employees. Because it turned out that organizations were forced to trust their people through homework, even if they, whether they wanted or not. And guess what? It generally worked extremely well. So if there was anything good coming out of COVID, it was kind of creating these uh, big cracks in that second assumption as well that you can't trust uh, most people. Yeah, no, great point with COVID and so many companies, you know, a lot of people had the idea you could only be effective if you were in the office. And for many people, COVID turned that on its head. I had worked a lot remote before that. So, you know, it wasn't a bit, I was getting ready to go remote at the time it all came down because they were closing the office I was in. So it wasn't a big change for me in that sense, but you know, obviously in other areas, it clearly was, but you know, I seen some companies, you know, go to the point of implementing tools that track how they're spending all their hours and their time because they're now remote and we need to make sure they're working. And it's like, you know, you just need to create a culture of trust and they'll do the work. And if you have someone who isn't, you need to address it. Putting the uh, nanny state or kind of nanny police in place is not going to solve any fundamental problems you have with the, you know, the output you're getting from people. I, I've never understood that lack of trust. And, you know, the, and one issue here is that uh, I guess all organizations probably have a few that you maybe can't trust. But that small, small minority is used as proof and evidence that you can't trust people. And I often use this example because I've always traveled a lot. And the first thing I always check when I enter the hotel room is what kind of clothing hangers do they have? And there are typically two types we meet, right? There's one with a hook for the rail and there's one without a hook. And I think we can all agree that that one without the hook is a hassle to use. So how come some hotels offer us these stupid hangers? And we all know why. Because there were a few hotel guests who stole a few of those hangers with a hook. And what was the response? To punish everybody because somebody did something wrong. Actually, one of the problems with traditional management when it comes to trust. It, it, it's a great example. It's the idea, you know, the one bad apple spoils it for everybody and you know, I get it. You know, you look at government or wherever. I worked in government and contracts and there were rule after rule that had been implemented where I started my career because somebody was a bad actor. And it's like, okay, is the, is it really the most efficient to punish everybody for the one or two people? You know, and it's often it's not. Often it's more expensive and doesn't make sense. You know, the prime example I use, I remember 
So the U.S. government used to audit everybody's travel and reimburse exactly for what it was. This was years ago. And they did an audit and found they were spending as much money to audit everything as they were on travel. And they just said, we're going to give everybody a per diem. They have policies that will follow and we'll do the periodic audit. And just, you know, if, the, if they don't spend it, they get some extra money and it was cheaper in the long run. Right. And that's much more of a trust of, hey, here's what you should need for a day. If you want to spend more, that's on you. If you want to spend less, there you go. It's yours versus, you know, managing every penny. Trust is free and control is not. Sometimes we should do the math like these guys did. Yeah, I agree. And there's a great, there's a great book. It's, a, I think it's The Speed of Trust by Stephen M. R. Covey. And he shares two examples. He calls it a trust tax and a trust dividend. And he gives the example of September 11th and says, when you went to the, you know, any airport in the U.S., pretty much globally, right after September 11th, there was a trust tax. It took you three times as long to get on the plane because nobody trusted you anymore. There was more security. There was checks. There is now actual taxes they put in place after that to pay for all that. And then he shares the example of a trust dividend. And he talks about FedEx when they were starting to do overnight shipping. They're able to get people to trust them and it allowed them to earn a higher profit because people actually started realizing, oh, you can actually deliver on that. And so talked about how in business there can be a trust tax and a trust dividend. And you want that trust dividend. You want to have trust among your people. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, all right. Well, let me let me come back here. Just, you know, kind of next question on this. So, you know, we've talked quite a bit about trust and obviously we've talked a little bit about, uh, you know, the other assumption, predictability. But, you know, what? why do you think so many companies stick with the traditional budgeting despite the issues? Why do you think that's such a common method? Well, the funny thing is that when I share with these companies and these executives and these finance people my list of budget problems, and that's quite a long list, uh, then everybody agrees. Yes, it is very time-consuming, assumptions quickly outdated, stimulates what I would call unethical behaviors, uh, creates these illusions of control, forces us to make decisions too early, and, and, and so on. People agree. At the same time, most organizations continue doing this stuff, even if that is changing these days. And one reason could be that these problems are regarded more as kind of irritating itches and not symptoms of a deeper and bigger and more systemic problem. But that is exactly what these problems are, symptoms of a big problem, which is also a paradox. Because here we are, first of all, we are looking at quite old management technology. Budgeting is a hundred-year-old management technology, and um, the inventor, Mr. James O. McKinsey, the founder of McKinsey Consulting. And I never met Mr. McKinsey, but I don't think he was an evil man. I think he had the best of intentions. He wanted to help organizations perform better. And th this was management innovation 100 years ago. And I'm sure it worked 100 years ago, maybe even 50 years ago. But today, this way of thinking, this way of managing, this way of leading is doing the, exactly the opposite. It has become more of a barrier than a support for getting out the best possible performance in organizations. And that is a big problem. And that is the problem that not enough yet have understood, even if they sense and, and experience the systems, uh, the symptoms every, every day. So if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like kind of the fundamental problem you see with, you know, budgeting is really you get suboptimal outcome from your team from your employees. It doesn't allow you to get the best out of people in that process, in part because of the management style, the lack of trust, in part because of the way you're doing it. Is that, did I summarize that right? Absolutely. I mean, and, and come on, beyond the trust issue, it is, it is one problem is that we are making decisions too early, right? We are sitting in the fall the year before 
deciding exactly what we shall do next year, what it shall cost. We are designing exactly what good performance looks like through that bottom line budget and so on, making decisions way too early, which is a problem in, a, in, in the kind of world we are living in now. So, so beyond the trust issue, you have the problem that is too rigid, too static and too detailed and so on. So you need management processes that are more continuous, uh, more dynamic, um, and where decisions are made where people have the best information, which is not necessarily always in the executive uh, room. Yeah, we completely agree with that. It often is not. That's, that's a good point on the executive room. And also just about being able to be agile and quickly change, right? I still remember, you know, COVID, we just finished our plan and then you could pretty much just flush it and start over because we supported insurance claims and nobody was driving. So no accidents were happening so that, you know, everything we had forecasted had been turned upside down, right? You got to, you almost started over for a lot of our business. You know, we had a few other areas. So I can totally relate to that of, okay, we planned all this out, but none of this is going to happen or valid at this point. So I know you've worked with a lot of companies you know, on, on this process. Can, maybe can you talk a little bit about some of the companies you have worked with to implement Beyond Budgeting? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I worked with, with uh, a lot of companies from the very big ones. The, the largest one has uh, close to 400,000 employees over to small startups who actually are beyond budgeting. They are born beyond budgeting, but they want to understand how they can grow without ending up in the same misery. And a lot of companies uh, in, in between. And what is fascinating is that they, these companies come from a variety of different types of businesses and activities. The problems they describe are so generic, so common. And that means that we can also apply some common ways of getting started. So with the majority of these companies, the way we got started was to, uh, I always ask them a very simple question. Why do you budget? And they all come up after having been thinking a bit with three different reasons. Companies make budgets to set targets financial targets, sales targets, production targets. At the same time, this budget shall be a forecast of what next year could look like in terms of profit, cash flow, and so on. So that's two purposes, target setting, forecasting. And the third one is resource allocation, handing out bags of money to the organization on OPEX and CAPEX. And it might seem very efficient to solve three purposes in one process and one set of numbers. But that is also the problem. Because what happens when we move into a traditional budget process? And upstairs, uh, let's assume that finance wants to understand next year's uh, profit. So they ask responsible people, uh, starting on the revenue side, what are your best numbers for next year? But everybody knows that what I'm sending upstairs will come back to me as a target for next year, maybe with a bonus attached. And we all know that that insight might do something to the level of numbers submitted. Moving to the cost side, finance is asking the same people, other people, what are your best numbers for next year? OPEX, CAPEX. But everybody knows that this is my only shot at getting access to resources for next year. And some might also remember that 20% cut from last year. And that insight and that memory might also do something to the level of numbers submitted. And I think you know what I'm talking about. And this is a problem, not just because it destroys the quality of numbers, but also because it stimulates this behavior that is at least borderline unethical. The lowballing, the gaming, the sandbagging, and so on. So that's the bad news. The good news is that there is a very simple solution. In Beyond Budgeting, we recommend to separate these three into three different processes where you can operate with different numbers and design different processes. 
So because they are different things. A target, for instance, that is an aspiration. It's what we want to happen. While a forecast is an expectation. It's what we think will happen, whether we like what we see or not. Should be brutally honest, the expected outcome. And last but not least, resource allocation is about optimization of what is often scarce resources, namely money. So having separated, we can now start to improve each one in ways impossible when it was all bundled in one set of numbers in one process. So now we can design targets which really inspire and stretch people without feeling stretched, which are more robust against all the uncertainty out there. We can work on the forecasting process to get the politics and the gaming out of it so we know we can trust the numbers. And last but not least, we can design much more intelligent and effective ways of managing cost than what Mr. McKinsey could offer us a hundred years ago. And last but not least, when we have separated the three, target setting, forecasting, resource allocation, we can then organize each of the three on a rhythm, on a cadence, which better reflect not just the individual purpose, but also the kind of business we're in. So we can make these processes more event-driven, more business-driven, and less calendar-driven. So this is a kind of proven, tested, very practical way of getting started that later can take you into bigger beyond budgeting discussions. Like target setting, what really motivates people? Like resource allocation, do we need detailed travel budgets if we say that we trust people and, and so on and so forth? And the other beautiful thing with this separation is that when people tell me that it's impossible to operate without a budget, then my response is that, well, here we still do what that budget tried to do for us, those three things. But because we've separated, we can do each one in much better ways. So how, how scary and how impossible is that? So, yeah, no, I appreciate you breaking it apart that way, because I agree with you. The three things you typically think of budgeting, like you mentioned, target, resource allocation and forecasting. And it sounds like one of the key things you're saying is, look, break each of those apart as separate processes, have their own cadence and manage them accordingly. Obviously, is there going to be some overlap? Sure, there can be some overlap between all that, but. Don't try to put it all into one process. I appreciate that explanation there. And I know you've implemented this with small companies, with large companies. I'm curious, I think one of the companies you implemented it with was Equinor, which is Scandinavia's largest company. Can you talk a little bit of some of the challenges and how that process went? Maybe, you know, I know you share in your book a little bit of the case studies. So just a little bit of detail there on what that one was like. I guess the challenges in Equinor were not that different from what I've experienced in so many organizations. I mean, there is fear fear of losing control. Actually, a lot of people don't realize that a lot of the controls they are so afraid of losing are nothing but illusions of control. Right. Of course, it might feel very comfortable to have next year described with a million details and decimals, but the only thing we know is that we don't know. And when, you know, some people said that, well, well, control is about kind of uh, that you know how much cost you're going to spend. So you, you kind of, you have control over cost. But is hitting a cost budget really having control if you should have spent more or could have spent less? How did you know upfront in the fall the year before exactly, not just the right total cost level, but also exactly the split of this onto each um, individual cost account and on each uh, tiny box on the organization chart? So a lot of illusions of control. And the good news here is that once organizations have tried this, gotten started, they realize that this stuff works. So what then happens is that the fear disappears and there is an appetite for doing more. Companies typically get braver along the way because what is scary today is not scary tomorrow because it works. So that, that fear is, is kind of classical. 
then we had the benefit in Equinor of um, not doing the two classical mistakes in implementation because I had experience from, from Borealis. And the first one is, again, to start with the separation of purposes, but companies look at the three and then they said forecasting. That seems to be the easiest one. So we are going to start with rolling forecasting. And when I hear that, my response is always, well, okay, but how will you then solve the two other budget purposes, target setting, resource allocation? And some people say that we will do that through the rolling forecast. Well, if that is what you do, what you have introduced is rolling budgeting, right? Typically four times a year, a lot of pissed off uh, people and you're doomed to fail. Others say that, no, we will still run budgets for those other purposes, target setting and resource allocation. Okay. But if so, you have solved very few of the problems. A little bit better forecasting, but that's it. So my message here is that I still recommend starting with separation, but you can't do this sequential, first this and then that. You have to do it in parallel. At the same time as you introduce rolling forecasting, you have to explain to the organization how will we now solve uh, or do target setting and resource allocation. So that one we avoided. The other classical mistake is a too weak and unclear case for change. So the organization is unclear about why we are doing this. And I always recommend companies, organizations to spend a lot of time on defining together what are the problems we are trying to solve? What is our case for change? Because the better job you do here, the easier it is when you start to design new solutions. And when you are in doubt, should we do this or this? You can go back to your problem and look at um, which of these design solutions would best solve our problem. If that problem definition is uh, foggy, I mean, you, ha you have a problem. So spend time on creating that case for change. Um, and not just in an isolated executive room, throughout the organization. Involve the organization. And they might bring up problems that executives maybe didn't even know existed. You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders. Multiple iterations, version control, errors, back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop, breathe. DataRails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. DataRails takes data from all of your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex, consolidating everything into one place, secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, intercompany transactions, now automated and up to date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel, embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FPNA machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com. You know, the second one there is you talk about the weak case. That is such a huge problem for any transformation, right? That goes so beyond the beyond budgeting transformation. You know, system implementations. I mean, change management, having a strategy, communicating, communicating, communicating some more, and not just at the top level, but throughout and making sure everybody 
understands and is part of the process. So often people think, well, I've said we need it, so everybody's going to get on board. No, they may be, in fact, think you're stupid, even though you just said you need it without really spending that time to make the case. So I love that example. But I have a question for you. You know, we've talked about, you know, the rolling forecast part. How do you recommend they separate? Like, how do you manage the target setting in kind of the beyond budgeting and the resource allocation as separate processes? How do companies think about that? Well, there are many different ways of doing it. But again, the, the, the separation is key because once you separate it, you can start about thinking about effective targets without thinking about the other purposes. And one recommendation in Beyond Budgeting is to, where it makes sense and where it's possible, to think in relative terms. Here I often use an example from European football, not not your football. I, I know what you're talking about when you say European football. <laughs> I'm yet to meet a football team saying that the ambition for next season is to score 39 goals and get 42 points. They don't think like that. Those are budget goals. And they don't think like that. For them, performance is all about doing well against peers. So what we recommend is that if you have, um, if you can establish a list of internal or external peers, right, then that can be a great way of driving performance. Then use transparency to compare performance in different units. And trust me, nobody likes to be laggards, right? It is a very effective way of of driving performance the way you want it, and uh, which is very different from if you have a target discussion about shall the target be 29.2 or 28 or so on, then everybody is negotiating for the lowest target, right? <laughs> yes, yes. But, but using these, we call it league tables in Europe, standings, right? Nobody likes to be laggards. Nobody likes to be down in the fourth quarter. Everybody wants to climb. That's exactly what you want. So, in some some of the organizations, uh, beyond budgeting organizations, they don't need to set targets. They just show this information. This is how you compare to others, right? And that drives performance. And their thinking is that we don't know upfront what the right target number would be <laughs> or performance would be in any case. How would we know? What they have realized is that we want the best possible performance given the circumstances. And it's only afterwards you know what that is. When when all the uncertainty is gone, when you have, uh, you know what kind of tailwind and headwind you had and changes in assumptions. So actually some of these companies, they're improving target process and so not setting targets at all. They don't need targets. They say we just simply just compare performance, typically internally then, and that drives performance. Um, you can also operate with targets here. You can say that the target is to be above average or in the first quarter, but some actually say, no, we don't need it. So if you go to Equinor, Equinor has established a, a table of 11 other energy companies and on two metrics, uh, return on capital employed and shareholder return, the target is simply to be above average on both every year. End of story. Right? So there's no predefined number. Uh, you don't need a big calculation, negotiation round. And the companies had the same targets for now since all, since it started out in 2005. So, so uh, 17, 18 years. And these targets are also robust against changes in assumption. It doesn't matter if energy prices are high or low. Are they high? Then they're high for everybody and vice versa. So very kind of what you call VUCA robust uh, targets. So that's one example on, on targets. On forecasting, then you have to remove the reasons for why people game on the forecast. And the classical reason is that it's forecasting is mixed with target setting. So it's a bid into a target negotiation and 
or a forecast is a bid for resources, right? So you have every reason to kind of present the forecast that is as, as high as possible. Correct. Yeah, it's one of the two. It either their bonus is tied to it, so they want to maximize their return by minimizing the forecast, or they're trying to make a point around resource allocation. I, I totally agree. Those are the two most common, far and away. Yeah. And when it comes to the last purpose of resource allocation, that is, of course, where we get most questions. So how can you manage cost without the budget? And we have many practical, concrete and tested alternative tools. And uh, let me start with CapEx investments. Uh, and again, one example from Equinor. Equinor does not have a traditional annual investment budget where you sit in the fall every year and decide exactly how much to invest, exactly split on these projects. And then these project money are handed out to each project as next year's uh, investment money. You know, if we take some learning from how we think about our private finances, uh, and that's quite interesting because we are quite beyond budgeting when it comes to how we manage our own money. But imagine that you're, uh, uh, it's April and your car breaks down, you need to buy a new one and you go to the bank and... Uh, you ask for a loan, and the bank um, uh, politely says that, sorry, we are only open for lending in October. The rest of the year, that activity is closed. And of course, no bank would do anything so, so, so stupid, but that is what budgeting is about. So what Equinor is saying is that when it comes to investments here, the bank is always open. So the line can always forward a project for approval at any time. And whether you get the yes or no depends on two things. How good is your project? And can we afford it as things look today? And that information can be afforded, comes out from good, unbiased forecasts uh, on, for instance, cash flow. So it's not that difficult on investments. It's a little bit more challenging on uh, operating costs. But let me quickly go through the menu we recommend. What we don't want is that detailed annual pre-allocation of cost uh, down to the last decimal split on Again, all the cost accounts uh, in, in the accounting system and, and then uh, handed out to every tiny box on the organization chart. Too early, too detailed. One alternative is something we call burn rate guiding. There's still a number in the range of 100,000, 1 million, 10, 50, whatever. Within that burn rate guiding, you have full autonomy to do the right thing, right? To spend that, those money wisely. But sometimes it can be difficult to know, should it be... 1 million or 10 or what, what should that number be? Then you can move from absolute thinking to relative thinking. And the first step of relativity here is to think unit cost. So you can, there's a unit cost target, right? $5 per unit. You can spend more if you produce more, spend more if you sell more, right? And so on and so on. So more self-regulating. Then you can move to benchmark unit cost. So you, there's no $5 per barrel target, but your unit cost should be competitive, Right, better than, than average, for instance. Then you can move to even something even more self-regulating. If you have internal profit centers with a tough bottom line target, EBIT, return, whatever, that is also a way of managing cost. Because that unit cannot run away and spend money like crazy. But it might be okay to spend cost if what they spend is what we in beyond budgeting call good cost. Because good cost is not a problem. Good cost creates value. As long as we have the financial capacity, we would actually like to see more good cost. It's the bad cost we want to get rid of. And the last alternative here is what I often call nothing at all. No budget, no target. The only numbers we have in this alternative are accounting numbers coming out of the accounting system. And then we look at trends. We monitor trends. And if it looks okay, we do nothing. If it looks a bit strange, we take a look at it. There might be some very good reasons, a doses of good cost, but... 
and this is important, we might also come across teams, managers who consciously or unconsciously abuse the trust that lies in this model. The further to the kind of right on the menu I was just describing, the more trust we are showing. And the only thing you know if you show trust in an organization is that someone will abuse it. In Equinor, it has happened, it will happen again. So that is not the issue. The issue is how do you respond? And the wrong response is the hotel clothing hanger response to punish everybody, right? Everybody back to the traditional budget because this trusting doesn't work. The right thing to do, which takes a bit more of leadership, is to take that very firm talk with those involved and let it have the necessary consequences. This is not about being soft and evasive, right? It's about not punishing everybody because somebody did something. And finally, this list of alternative tools, mechanisms, can then be supported by two additional guardrails. One is decision authorities. So how big a decision can you take expressed in money before you have to go one level up? That has nothing to do with budgets. And last but not least, kind of spending standards. Like, again, Equinor, in Europe, we fly coach. Intercontinental, you can fly business. Has nothing to do with travel budgets, but simply helps people to make decisions. Thank you. That was very helpful. I really, that was very thorough in what you walked through there. And you've made me even more interested. I'm looking here at my uh, card going, okay, I need to put that number in and order the book when we're done. Because I, I really like what we're talking about. and It makes a lot of sense to me. So thank you. I, you know, I appreciate that detailed explanation there. And I want to go back to to the book here for a minute, you know, from the little bit I scan kind of online, what I could see, you know, one of the things you talk about is how the process make organizations more adaptive and human. Could you talk a little bit why that is? What, you know, what is it that causes it to be more human? Is it the trust factor or, you know, what's the kind of key underpinning of that assumption? Now, it is the combination of the 12 beyond budgeting principles. Uh, again, when it comes to more human, I mean, not just good and humanistic leadership intentions, but management processes deflecting that. And people notice and people appreciate it. And organizations also become more adaptive through implementing these management processes, target, uh, our recommendations on target setting, forecasting, resource allocation, but also on performance evaluation and rewards and also on the rhythm and the coordination. That's basically the six management uh, processes. So it is the totality of these 12 principles that makes organizations more human and more adaptive. And of course, this hangs together. Uh, a human organization is actually also more adaptive, and an adaptive organization is also very often more, more human. So these, these two hang together. That makes sense how they hang together, more human, more adaptive. They kind of they feed upon each other or work together. Totally makes sense. So let's just say, you know, somebody's listening to this and they want to implement this in their organization. What advice would you offer to that person? Well, get the book. <laughs> I'm, I'm not selling books here, but I mean, it, it is, if you're kind of cold on beyond budgeting, it is, uh, it is a good place to start. That is what people tell me. Um, then check up the Beyond Budgeting Roundtable. It is an international network of organizations, companies, and individuals interested in this. Sign up for our newsletter. Our web address is bbrt.org. We've just launched a new website. It's in a beta version, so it's quite 
primitive so far, but uh, you will find more and more stuff. And then sign up for our newsletter, which will give you information about what happens. We used to have um, a roundtable US. Right now, that is, is not existing. So we are looking at ways to get this restarted. So if you know one of those that could be interested in making that happen, let us know. might also want to check out my website, uh, boxnessadvisory.com. It's a very simple one, but um, I think it contains what it needs to contain. So Great. We'll make sure to put all those in the show notes for people, the BBRT, the, the newsletter, your book, and your website so that you know they can see those resources and get easy access to them. You know, we're coming up toward the end of our time. I think I could keep talking forever on this subject because I find it really fascinating. But I mean, I know we all have things to do. So just a few more questions here. So if someone's looking to implement, you know, what's maybe you'd offer that kind of advice of resources, but what do you see as the most common challenge that you would kind of make sure they should be aware of? Those kind of watch out things as they start to implement it that sometimes you go, this is too hard or you kind of give up because you're like, can't manage it. So what are some of those things you just kind of recommend they look out for and really pay close attention to as they're going through the process? I, I think uh, I touched upon that a little bit earlier because I'm done. Um, that would be the make sure that you build a strong case for change and also don't start with rolling forecast only. And what I could recommend in addition, that's another book which I haven't mentioned, and that is, I guess many are familiar with the business model canvas, a great way of documenting, discussing business models. So far, there has been nothing discussing, describing management models, but now there is one based on the 12 beyond budgeting principles. We have um, together just finalized a book, which is on its way out, called The Viable Map, and it's kind of helps you when it comes to discussing what is a management model, because we might have very different views on what that is to kind of get everybody in the same place. What is a management model to uh, describe? Well, what's the current management model in this company? You can use it to diagnose uh, problems and issues with that model, and you can use it to design better ways, all based on the Beyond Budgeting model. So it's a very practical book inspired by the Business Model Canvas book and uh, Alex Ostervald and it's great work. So um, that is a book that we hope can help organizations on getting started on implementing uh, Beyond Budgeting in addition to my other recommendations here. Great. I appreciate all those and I'll coordinate with you to make sure we get everything, like I said, in the show notes for that. So, you know, just a couple last questions here. The first is one we like to ask everybody, a little more of a personal question. So kind of switching gears on this one. What is something unique about you that you could share with our audience? Maybe something they wouldn't find online that makes you unique. Well, I don't know if it's a unique, but I love music, great music. And I am a vinyl guy. CD, streaming, Spotify, not my thing. Of course, I have it, but uh, vinyl, that's the thing. The sound of it, the smell of it, the look of it. So uh, I never gave up collecting vinyl when the CD came. A lot of others sold off their vinyl collections. I didn't. So uh, today I have around... Uh, three and a half thousand and yeah so listening to music on vinyl on my turntable is something i simply love that's great and i'd say that's probably something that yeah not many people do anymore i remember growing up listening to vinyl but i will say i graduated from that so to speak you know in that i just i don't have any vinyl but it is kind of a fun when you see it or listen to it my parents still pretty sure my parents still have some of their vinyl so that's a fun one i like that it might be worth a fortune these days Prices are just increasing. So. Uh, n- not surprised. And so I'm going to let our audience know uh, 
he got out of the Excel question because he let me know he hasn't used it for 20 years. That's when we've asked everybody in our audience what their favorite thing is. And we always get to see the different answers. But, you know, you get to uh, skip that question. When, when I joined Equinor, I was actually uh, using the second PC that arrived in that company back in 1983. It was an IBM 3270 with a double uh, floppy disk station, no hard disk. And those disks were very floppy. And uh, there was a spreadsheet program called SuperCalc. Yes, I remember that vaguely. I do remember seeing that. Yeah, right. And I transferred all my manual tasks into SuperCalc and it worked wonderful. And uh, after a couple of months, uh, a guy um, came to me and said, I got some good news and some bad news. There's a new spreadsheet coming, which is uh, uh, much better. It's called Microsoft 123 or something. And the bad news is not compatible. So I had to do all my work over again. So back then, I was actually the spreadsheet expert in. Equinor, but the way my career kind of turned out, I have hardly used it for 20 years. So um, the few times I asked my colleagues for, for help on some stuff, I could see the kind of smug smiles, this old guy not getting anything. Then I gently reminded them about there was a time when I was the expert. Yeah, no, depending on what you're doing, you know, right? Like I think in my career, I spent like four hours a day in it. I don't spend near as much now as I'm doing my own business, but, you know, in work. So I, I get it. Things change, priorities change. That, that's a great story. And I do remember SuperCal and some of those things. So last question here. Yeah, Lotus 1, 2, 3, yes. Yes, yep, Lotus Notes 1, 2, 3. I remember that one, using that in high school is where I used it. So I remember writing a, I wrote a business plan and we used Lotus Notes 1, 2, 3 to create it. So, you know, and then college, we were still using some of the, uh, it wasn't all Microsoft at that point. They just started, I think, training on Excel. So date myself a little bit, but it's definitely changed a lot. You look around today. So last question here, if people want to get in touch with you or learn more about you or beyond budgeting, what's the best way to do that? Well, again, check out the, the website, or um, if you want to reach me, check out my, my website, boxnessadvisory.com. You'll find the contact uh, details. And again, since I left Equinor a few years ago uh, and then started Boxness Advisory, my, my capacity to, to help companies getting started is uh, has, of course, increased uh, significantly. I've been doing this uh, alongside my work in Equinor for many, many years, but now I can do it uh, full-time. And I would love to help your organization as well. And if I could leave you just with one final message here. What we have discussed today, it will happen. It will happen. I don't care if it will be called beyond budgeting or business agility or whatever. That is not important. But in 15, 20 years time, maybe much earlier, when we look back at what was mainstream management in 2023, including budgeting, we will smile, even have a laugh. Just like we today smile about the days before the internet or before the smartphone. And how long ago is that? And here, organizations, they have a choice. They can choose to be early movers, vanguards, and get the competitive advantage of doing this early. Or they can choose to be dragged into this as one of the last ones or anything in between. And every year you wait, competitors will be ahead of you. And maybe you also have a choice. Maybe you can be remembered as one of those that made this happen in your organization. Or remembered for the opposite, if you resisted and said no, or ignored if you simply didn't take a stand. And whatever you choose, I wish you all the best. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you, you know, making time to be on the show. I'm really excited to share this one with our audience. So thank you. And I hope you have a 
great rest of your day and look forward to chatting with you again. Thanks. 